0: Get started
1: with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Last time on Urge to Kill.
2: And I came across uh, what I believe to be uh, Miss Sawyer uh, laying on the rocks. I did not have any vital signs.
3: We advised her family not to look at the autopsy photos.
2: Why us? How can it be us? Mm -hmm. How can this be Kaylee? This
4: can't
1: be. How am I going to tell her brothers? So essentially, the whole confession he made to you and Detective McLaughlin got tossed out.
5: Yeah, if you want to say it got tossed out, yeah.
1: Before we begin, a warning that this episode contains graphic language and subject matter. It may not be suitable for everyone. Losing Edwin Lara's murder confession is no doubt a huge setback for Deschutes County District Attorney John Hummel and his team.
3: The bottom line is the court ruled that um, Lara had uh, made a, a request for an attorney and so that the questioning that occurred uh, after that was uh, was impermissible and, um, and, and we respect that ruling.
1: But they move forward. When that sort of thing happens and specifically in this case, when you have, uh, you know, that confession basically tossed out did you think that it was over in a sense or did you know you could still get him on a lot of other evidence
3: i didn't think it was over uh, i knew it would be harder to hold him accountable but um by by no means did we have nothing i mean we knew he had he told his wife uh, something we we thought what he told his wife what he told his wife was not true he told his wife he'd hit kaylee accidentally but, but at least we had an admission from him that he was involved in, in Kaylee's death. We had, uh, we had forensic evidence, uh, which was important. We had what he told uh, Andrea Mays, and, uh, and, and we also had you know, the horrific crimes that he uh, committed down in, uh, in California in addition to the kidnapping of Andrea. So I never thought that he would not be held somewhat accountable. I did wonder if he would be whole, held wholly accountable.
1: I'm Ashley Korslan, and this is Episode 7 of Urge to Kill, a KGW original.
2: Yeah, the gonna take me home.
1: For D.A. Hummel, the tossed confession wasn't his first hurdle in the case against Edwin Lara. One of his pivotal moments came well before that. It involved how he would prosecute Edwin, specifically with the death penalty.
3: Edwin Laura's is the first person that I've prosecuted who has uh, exhibited an urge to kill. It causes a um, kind of a chill in your body when you hear that. You're like, wow, this is a, this is a, different, this is a different being that we are dealing with. This is a different person. And um, it, uh, it kind of redoubles your resolve to do everything you can to deliver the best prosecution possible to ensure that somebody who has an urge to kill never walks the streets again.
1: Hummel, who was elected district attorney in 2014, is morally opposed to the death penalty. But sometimes you have to put aside your personal beliefs and do things you're not comfortable with.
3: Laura's case was not the first time I had to do that. Um, but I take that uh, extremely seriously. Nothing I do is more consequential than that. and when you think of the power that we give to government officials, the power to take a life is absolute, and we give very few people that power. Um, the, the president to declare war, and then people who decide whether to seek the death penalty, and so I had to say, uh, look, in spite of my moral opposition to the death penalty, mm-hmm. you know, when I raised my hand and took an oath, I took an oath to um, enforce the laws that Oregonians passed, laws that I agree with and laws that I disagree with. So I had to uh, enforce this law. But enforcing the death penalty means, on a case-by-case basis, I have to decide, is this case um, worthy of a a sentence of death? And then I sat with it. long time and uh, had to decide whether to seek the ultimate penalty.
1: Ultimately, he makes his decision.
3: And after doing so, there was no doubt if this case wasn't worthy of seeking the death penalty, then I, in essence, would have um, written the death penalty out of the law in Deschutes County. This case presented um, uh, an example of the worst of the worst, the most egregious. Um, if we are going to have a death penalty in Oregon, it's uh, meant for Edwin Laura.
1: As I sit in John Hummel's office for this interview overlooking the city of Bend, even I get a lump in my throat. I watch his eyes well with tears as he talks about it. I could tell when you were talking about having to make that decision that it's really weighed on you. Uh, I was,
3: was emotional thinking back to how I was feeling then. And uh, when you sit, I mean, I sat at that desk over there. And when you sit and you have to decide whether to try to take someone's life, not many people have to do that. And uh, I'm glad for them that they don't. And, but I also tell you, it's, it's a moment when you, you find clarity and you are resolute. And you realize that this is why I was elected. Uh, I'm elected for the shoplifting cases. I'm elected for the trespassing cases. I'm elected when one of my staff wants to take a vacation day and they need to come in and see if I'll approve the vacation. And I'm elected to work on my budget. But when you are deciding whether to seek death in a, in a case like this, man, that's why I was sitting at that desk. That's why I'm in this position. And uh, it's heady, weighty stuff, and, uh, and uh, I, I never doubted the seriousness of it, and, and I gave it the attention it deserved.
1: In the end, Edwin doesn't get the death penalty— Nine months before his murder trial, in January of 2018, he reaches a plea agreement with prosecutors. He pleads guilty to one count of aggravated murder and one count robbery and takes a deal of life in prison with no chance of parole.
3: And um, the negotiations were simple in this case because the only sentence I would consider was a sentence of true life. There was no way I was going to have Kaylee Sawyer's family um, be appearing at a parole hearing in 30 years facing edwin lara who was seeking to be released on parole so we told the uh, defense counsel if if lara accepts a sentence of true life meaning he will never again um, live outside a penitentiary um, we will accept that
1: the plea agreement is formalized during an emotional hearing in a deschutes county courtroom
4: So, Mr. Lara, as you know, you will be spending the rest of your life in prison without any possibility of release whatsoever, under any circumstances. It's certainly appropriate. It's not only appropriate, it's been agreed upon as part of this plea agreement. It's crystal clear that the defendant threw his entry of plea this morning. The
1: room is filled with Kaylee's friends and family. And sitting in the front row are the detectives and police officers who work tirelessly to see this case through to the very end. Just feet away from them, Edwin Lara sits with his attorneys. He's in a charcoal gray suit with a black tie. His black hair is longer than the last time anyone saw him, and it's gelled back. He has a dark mustache and goatee, which are messy and untrimmed. He's put on weight, too, and looks weary and tired. Edwin doesn't make much eye contact with anyone in the room, especially when Kaylee's loved ones get up to talk. Judge Adler, my name is Sharon Walden. Kaylee's grandmother, Sharon Walden, stays calm and poised as she reads her victim impact letter.
6: Before I share a few of my memories of Kaylee, I will share little brother Cody's story about Kaylee. He said to me the other day, my sister, I love her so much. I loved her and she always played with me and she really loved me so much. Cody, five years old.
1: She is unwavering as she tells Edwin exactly what he stole from her.
6: Kaylee was my first grandchild. We had a very close relationship. We spent our time together reading books. Over 2,000 books were enjoyed, and we went on adventures together. I'd like to think of Kaylee as my Central Oregon girl. She learned to ski at Mount Bachelor when she was only five years old. Later, she learned to snowboard. Kaylee and her boyfriend Cam were able to enjoy the mountain together then on July 24, 2016, her life was violently taken from her. And today, January 22, 2018, with the admission of guilt by the defendant and the sentencing that Judge Adler will impose, there will never again be a young woman that will be taken against her will by this Central Oregon Community College campus security guard
0: my name is naomi
6: kaylee's
1: best friend also speaks
0: on the day we lost kaylee i lost so much more
1: she fights back tears as she talks
0: on july twenty fourth, 2016 kaylee was ripped from all of our lives she's been my best friend since i was 13 years old when we first met she told me that she had never had a best friend for more than a year but I've always been the type of person to have one best friend, rather than many good friends. The year quickly passed. One year became three, which became seven. And the next thing you know, we were well on our way to ten years of friendship. We were soulmates. Every day, I am reminded of her absence. Now as I get ready to start planning my wedding, which is supposed to be one of the happiest days in my life, I fight an endless battle of tears. I can't picture this day without the one person. I knew it was going to be at my side. I know monsters really do exist. I can no longer stay home alone at night because I am paralyzed with fear. In the times I am alone, the nights are sleepless and filled with panic attacks. Eventually, when I can fall asleep, my dreams are filled with her. Everything is always okay, And then I wake up to the harsh reality that the nightmare is my life. The day we lost Kaylee, my heart was shattered into a million pieces. And I know I'll never be able to fully put it back together again because so many of those pieces left the her. Thank you.
5: Hi.
4: This is kind of tough, but... I'm sorry, Doug, what's your last name? Pardon? Full name, please. Doug Gray.
1: Then a close friend of the Sawyer family takes his turn.
4: You
5: have no idea how much... Irreversible damage this piece of shit has done to my extended family. His anger pierces the room. With that said, I'm not much of a religious person, but I have my beliefs, and one of them is an eye for an eye. So if you will give custody to this piece of shit to my extended family, we'll take them out in the desert... We'll let the eagles, the hawks, the coyotes, and the maggots eat that piece of shit alive. And then, when the buzzards are done pecking his friggin' body, I'm gonna shit in his face and piss on
1: his carcass, and I'm gonna fill his carcass full of lead. He aims his hand directly at Edwin Lara, as if he's pointing a gun. Pow! But perhaps the most impactful and haunting words come from Kaylee's grandfather, Jim Walden.
7: Maternal grandfather of Kaylee Ann Sawyer. I'm Papa Jim. If I were to be given three wishes, these are what they'd be. Number one, to have our Kaylee back with us alive and well and pursuing her life, A goals. I know that's impossible. Number two, I'd wish to have this piece of garbage, the defendant, sentenced to death for what he's done to Mike Haley. And number three, I wish the court system in the state of Oregon would just hand him over to me and allow me to administer the death sentence. I realize all of my wishes are just that—just wishes. But he will die in prison, and it will be a lifetime experience for you. He'll probably wish he'd been given the death sentence. Rotten hell, scumbag.
1: Once everyone reads their letters.
7: Uh, Your Honor, I
8: only have a a few comments for the court, and then I believe Mr. Lara uh, would like to make a statement.
1: Edwin's attorney addresses the room.
8: I know Mr. Lara... Uh, ultimately will ask for forgiveness from those who it's appropriate and it's forgiveness is not something that uh, he can just get. It's, it's given to him if it is given to him. Uh, however, remorse is something that he does have to offer and I can let the court know that in my many, many conversations with Mr. Lara that Mr. Lara does express a tremendous amount of remorse and a tremendous amount of regret over his actions. I do not believe that a single event, even a terrible, horrible crime or a set, set of days defines entirely who that person is. Um, the people who wrote the letters to the court certainly know a different Edwin Lara than are reflected in just his actions on the 24th, 25th, 26th of July of 2016. And uh, unless the court has anything further, I think Mr. Lara would like to make this. Up if this is an appropriate time. All right. Appropriate time.
1: And then Edwin makes his first and only public statement.
9: Today, I've seen your pain. Today, I've seen your hate. I don't know how much to say to you at this moment. I only have a single prayer. But someday, something I would like to speak to whoever's willing to listen.
1: Several of Kaylee's family members leave the room while Edwin speaks, unwilling to give him another moment of their time.
9: God Almighty who are in heaven, oh Elohim tonight. I'll ask you to please heal the hearts, all those broken hearts of this community. I ask you to please heal the hearts of this family, of everyone who is in this place today. And may Kaylee Sawyer rest in peace. Amen.
1: When he finishes, Judge Adler has this message for Edwin.
4: So I've lived in Bend almost 30 years, and uh, I've been a judge over 20 years, and uh, presided over many murder cases, both trials and sentencings. This case stands out for many reasons. Uh, I cannot recall any case in Bend that had such a that shocked the community to the extent that this case has second I think the vulnerability of this particular victim Kaylee Sawyer under all of the circumstances walking alone on a, a college campus some dangerous area no a college campus in Bend Oregon she's walking near her home on a college campus and uh, campus safety officer stops to uh, give her a ride, but wearing a uniform, a law enforcement type uniform, driving what appeared to be a, a patrol car, and most importantly, holding a position of trust, uh, entrusted with ensuring the safety of uh, people on this college campus, young people. Of course, you were not, uh, in, the, in the course of picking her up, you were not protecting her or other young people, you were acting as the predator that you were that evening. You saw this vulnerable young woman as someone you could prey upon. There's no doubt about it. You could sugarcoat it all you want. That's what you did. The incredible brutality of this murder sets this case apart. I don't recall another case like it.
1: Growing up here, dealing with everything that's going on now, I'm surprised this town's even standing. Bardstown, Kentucky is a small town in the heart of the bluegrass state. But Bardstown, Kentucky also has secrets. Five unsolved murders over four years, rumors and theories, and still no one is behind bars. I've been 100%
2: right. Listen
1: to what I'm saying. You listen to what I'm saying. Bardstown, a new podcast from Vault Studios. It's been you know, almost six years. There's still not a lot of answers. After Edwin Lara is sentenced to life in prison for Kaylee Sawyer's murder, most people assume detectives closed the book on the case. But they're far from done. In fact, police are still actively searching for someone else they believe was involved. During Edwin's six-hour police interrogation, right after his arrest, he talked about someone named Vin. His name is Melvin Mejia.
5: In our our conversation um, with Melvin, what do you think that he's going to say about what he knows about this situation with Katie? Well, he's not going to say anything because he doesn't know anything. We're trying to find out, did he rape her as well?
1: Melvin is Edwin's cousin, the cousin who went with Edwin and Isabel to a horror movie the day after the murder. It turns out, Melvin may have been involved in helping Edwin cover up the crime.
5: Let me ask you this question. I'm going to be pretty straight with you. Do you think I should treat Melvin as a witness for what you've done because he knows and he saw? Or should I treat Melvin like a willing accomplice who helped you pre-plan this or was he just involved in assisting you in that small role or or do we need to play it back i mean was he doing a ride-along thing with you at work and was involved in probably instigating you potentially to want to rape this guy was he there for that not in any way then what happened next with him because i mean like I said, I don't want to say that the dude raped her. I don't want to do that. But I mean, my, it, what I'm being left at with his story right now, the reports that we're getting and the conversation we had with him yesterday, is that I'm not all too sure that he wasn't there with you that night. We already know about the rest of it. I need to hear it from you. I'd like to hear it from you. But you tell me if he raped her no, or not. No, Melvin didn't rape her. Melvin
3: didn't
5: murder her with me. Melvin and, wasn't there, there with me. So he just helped then? Which part Edwin. of it did he help? From Edwin the beginning? did not help at all in that case. At the beginning, or th- no, what are you saying? Edwin was never included.
9: And anything that has to do with Kaylee, Melvin was never included.
1: At first, Edwin tried to deny that Melvin had any involvement, but he eventually came clean. Edwin needed help hiding Kaylee's body, so he threatened Melvin that he would call immigration and get him deported back to Honduras... If he didn't help.
2: Tell the corner of him. You did? You told
5: me you were gonna get him sent back to, to Honduras? That'd make a man do almost anything, right?
1: So after leaving Kaylee's body in a neighborhood in Redmond, Edwin went home and then decided that spot wasn't secluded enough. So we called Melvin, then picked him up. The two went to where Edwin left Kaylee, put her in the trunk of the car, then drove to Highway 126, where they left her. Just tell us what you can tell us about the cousin involved. Yeah. I asked D.A. Hummel about where the case stands today since Melvin disappeared shortly after the murder.
3: Cousin's a suspect, in uh, helping to dispose of the body, the challenge uh, is: uh, do, can we develop enough evidence to charge him? Mm-hmm. Um, if we have enough evidence, um, he will be charged. And if we don't, we won't. So that's an active investigation. But um, and and he's a suspect. I don't think that's uh, any any uh, secret. If it was a secret, it's not now because I just told you. But um, yeah, we he needs to know we're uh, we're we're working this case hard, and we're always hoping for that that one additional piece of evidence that will get us there. Uh, we don't have enough evidence yet, but um, we're working it.
1: He disappeared after this happened.
3: Yeah, he disappeared. Um, we, I'm not concerned about that. If we, if we file charges, we'll find him, um, but we, we just haven't filed charges yet.
1: Um, can you talk about what you believe he did? I mean, you, you, do you think it's limited to the scope of helping um, dump her body?
3: Uh, I do. Uh, I, I've not seen uh, evidence that he was involved in the killing of uh, Kaylee.
1: The cousin's full name is Melvin Rosalio Perez Mejia. If you have substantial information that could lead to his whereabouts, call the Redmond, Oregon Police Department at
7: 541-504-3400.
1: Another family member impacted by Edwin Lara's actions is his now ex-wife, Isabel. She filed for divorce in August of 2016, weeks after Kaylee's murder. Isabel has since dropped Lara as her last name and uses only her maiden name. Not long after she filed for divorce, Isabel also resigned as a Ben police officer, ending a 13-month career in law enforcement. She said the following in her October 2016 resignation letter. This decision has not been easy, but I have decided that it will be in the best interest for my career advancement and future development. Isabel has since moved from Redmond to Portland. Her life, no doubt, was destroyed by Edwin's actions. But she's not without criticism. Some people in the community, including law enforcement, have blamed Isabel for taking too long to turn Edwin into police after he confessed to her. She didn't call 911 immediately after Edwin left their home. Instead, detectives believe she waited several hours to go in person to the police station and report everything. Is that the issue people have? Is that they feel she waited too long?
3: The people who have an issue with her, that's the issue, that she waited too long. Many people don't have an issue with her, but I've heard that um, from people that they think she waited too long.
1: But District Attorney Hummel is quick to defend Isabel. Are we talking hours, six hours, two hours?
3: No. Um, Well, um, from when Laura left until when she went to the police station, um, it was less than an hour, I I think 30 minutes or so.
1: Um, How did you feel Isabel handled herself in this whole case?
3: Yeah, Isabel is, uh, let me tell you this, nobody, nobody knows how they will react if the love of their life comes home and says, I've done the unthinkable. Um, the thought that you know people can Monday morning call her back and say, I immediately would have handcuffed that man and raced him to the police, or I immediately would have called 911. Um, that's foolish, because uh, you haven't been in that situation. I, uh, I, I think, you know how would I have handled it if the love of my life says that to me? And the answer is, I don't know. Uh, in that moment also, um, we have to, can't discount the fact that she may have been uh, scared for her life. This, uh, her, her husband, albeit her husband, um, but he had just said that he had uh, you know, struck, struck a, a young woman. He took her gun from her. He took his wife's gun. He took Isabel's gun. Um, what is she thinking at that point? Is he going to shoot me if I try to call the police? So um, she kept things calm. She got information from him. He left. And then she reported it. Some people say she should have reported it sooner. Uh, I I can't Monday morning quarterback. I will tell you this. She reported it. I know there's lots of people who would not have reported it. They would have said, you know, that's my husband, that's my wife, till death do us part, and I'm taking this information to my grave. And, uh, And she reported it.
1: And then there's this. According to detectives, Isabel also left out key information during her interview with them. They say she initially didn't tell them that Edwin had family in the area, specifically that his mom and stepdad lived in Redmond. This was crucial information because, remember, Edwin left his house in his car, then went to his parents' house, ditched his car, then took off in theirs. Investigators feel that Isabel's omission cost them several hours in the early stages of their search. A detective emailed me this. To put the timeline into perspective, had information been provided in a timely fashion regarding his parents, we would have located his vehicle very quickly as it was right down the street from his parents' house. In turn, we would have identified the vehicle he had taken from his parents' house and likely known about that vehicle prior to his abduction of Andrea. With the resources we had available, it's reasonable to assume we would have had a good chance to stop him before the attempted murder and carjacking and kidnapping in California. I asked D.A. Hummel about all of this, too. I wanted to know why Isabel was never charged if she intentionally misled investigators. Hummel wrote me this. I'm aware of the allegations about Ms. Ponce. We investigated them and determined no crime was committed. We did try to call Isabel to give her a heads up about this podcast and to ask her some questions.
6: This is
1: Isabel. Hi, Isabel. My name is Ashley Korsland, and I work for KGW, and we have you on your a recorded line. And I just wanted to um, let you know that we are working on a podcast about your ex-husband, and we just kind of wanted to give you a heads up and let you know.
6: Okay, thank you for letting me
1: know. Okay, would you be interested in talking with us, Isabel?
6: Uh, no, I'm not.
1: Okay, thank you.
6: And I would appreciate it if I don't get contact ever again. Thank you.
1: Okay. The last thing we uncovered about Isabel is this. Her cell phone search history revealed she looked up the following topics. Spousal privilege, whether spouses can be forced to testify against one another, and how can I avoid testifying against my husband? One other interesting note about this chapter in the case, the only reason police figured out Edwin had family in the area and tracked down his getaway car is that a detective recognized Edwin's name from a different case. It turns out that detective had investigated Edwin's stepdad, Jose Santos Flores Cardenas, for sex abuse. Jose was a pastor at a church in Redmond and was accused of sexually abusing an underage girl in 2012. He was eventually charged with sex abuse, and after posting bond, he disappeared. A warrant was issued for his arrest in February of 2019. If you have information about his whereabouts, call Redmond Police. One of the biggest questions we have about Edwin's crime spree is why? Why did he do it? On paper, he's someone you would never expect to commit these sorts of crimes. A security guard turned campus safety officer, an aspiring police officer, the spouse of a cop, someone with no criminal record who was active in his church, but he's someone who lived a double life. We wanted to learn more about him, but we didn't find much online. So we reached out to Edwin's family and friends, and no one would talk to us. We even contacted several of his former defense attorneys, and they all declined to talk. One did tell me that even he struggled to get character witnesses during the court proceedings because of the heinousness of Edwin's crimes. Edwin was born in Honduras in 1985 and emigrated to the U.S. with his family when he was around seven or eight. The family settled in Los Angeles. Edwin's mom told investigators that Edwin never met his biological dad and was raised by his stepfather. Eventually, the family moved from California to Madras, Oregon, a small town about 45 minutes from Bend. According to his attorney, Edwin dropped out of high school because of drug and alcohol abuse and later got a GED. During Edwin's sentencing, his attorney read a letter written by his mom where she talked about Edwin's younger years.
8: She writes, I am Edwin's mother, Gladys Flores. As a child, Edwin was a calm, respectful boy. He was very social and he liked to befriend people. Edwin was an excellent son up until this occurrence. He was the pride of my life. He was never an aggressive person. He never acted out in aggressive ways. To be honest, I am as confused and bewildered as everyone else with regard to how this could have happened. In marriage, I would see he would always give priority to his wife's wishes. He was not a selfish person. When he had the money he spent it on others, not just himself. Edwin's aunts, uncles, and cousins all congratulated me for having what they would describe also as a good son and a good person. Edwin was a God-fearing man and from a young age attended church. He knows how God is. After his marriage, he did not attend church regular as regularly, but he never forgot about God. When my husband, Edwin's stepfather, became gravely ill and had open-heart surgery, Edwin supported us financially and emotionally, paying our rent, buying our groceries, paying our bills for many months. He never once complained. Even though I will still be able to see my son... I understand how hard it must be for the other family who will never see their daughter again. My prayer is there will be peace and healing for both families who have suffered greatly. And that's signed by Ms. Flores.
1: According to Edwin, he met Isabel at church in Madras and the two got married after dating for three years. He, just like Isabel, wanted to be a police officer and went on to study criminal justice at Central Oregon Community College. He worked for a private security company before getting hired as a part-time security officer at COCC in December of 2014. We called about a half-dozen of Edwin's former colleagues at the college. Most of them never called us back, except one. Daniel Lashbaugh worked with Edwin in the campus public safety department and also studied with Edwin in the criminal justice program.
2: I did work directly with him for about uh, a year and a half. Um, we were we were going through the whole uh, process of the campus public safety there at the college. Um, and I actually attended multiple classes um, while attending school there with him, um, going through similar um, criminal justice classes as well.
1: Daniel remembers Edwin as being very reclusive.
2: Edwin was quiet. He was straightforward. He was kind of he was didn't really beat around the bush kind of thing. Um, he uh, odd is not the right way to put it, but it's close to it. Um, he was very. He wouldn't initiate a conversation. He was very like reactive in a way that uh, he'd be willing. He, he's, he seemed like a good worker and was good at school. Focused, I mean, in the same way that we all were in the sense that we were working towards something and, um, getting our time in. But I, I agree with the fact that, uh, something was off. Um, he was quiet. He was, um, sometimes the speech, like, it, it was short, I would say, um, just, just conversationally.
1: According to interviews detectives did with the woman Edwin was having an affair with, Alice, Edwin kept a secret phone, Facebook account, and email address to hide their relationship from Isabel. Edwin also lied and told Alice that he was a police officer. She said that Edwin flew her to Oregon on a couple occasions and took her on lavish dates and stayed in fancy hotels. This was all while Isabel was away at the police academy. Edwin also threatened to kill Alice if she ever gave him a sexually transmitted disease. Their relationship ended about six months before Kaylee's murder. One of the more disturbing things we found out about Edwin is that not only did he show intimate videos of him and Alice to colleagues at COCC, he also sent them a video of a dead body and showed them video of a second. According to police documents, Edwin had traveled to Honduras about a year before Kaylee's death. His colleagues later told investigators that Edwin texted a group of them video of a person who apparently died in a hit-and-run and was lying in the road. Most of them dismissed the odd message and deleted it. Then when he returned to work, Edwin showed them another video of someone who had drowned in floodwaters during his trip. No explanation as to why he wanted them to see it. When they interrogated him, detectives were bothered by how Edwin asked to call the media several times after his arrest.
5: Um, you don't want to call like, COCC or something like that, right? Steve, keep calling you call the You want to call the news? Good,
2: Mister.
1: Okay. They felt he had this sense of arrogance, almost pride over what he did, which rubbed them the wrong way. So they straight up asked Edwin if he was a serial killer.
5: And we really got to find a way to really get people to believe this is first and only time. Like you said before, I mean, those are your words, that it's pattern, right? Um, And we're not worried about that in the sole sense of, like, if we got more work to do, it's better for us to know about that work so we can just keep moving. So you're saying that I might be a serial killer? Might be other victims out there? We're concerned that there are other victims, not necessarily dead people or... Murder victims. But yeah, yeah. We're, we're, that's a worry of ours, I think. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know why people become serial killers or serial offenders? I don't know. I think they started
2: something like this. A lot of the
5: reasons why is that because they're sociopaths, which means they don't know or claim they don't know right from wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, I know right from Sure. Yeah, and I know that it was wrong. 100%. So you're not a sociopath, serial killer. So you knew what you were doing was wrong when you were doing it? Well, of course, because of pure English. And you also knew it was 100% against the law. Is that correct? Yes. Being that you've studied this field and we're looking in there, were you thinking about the crimes that were being committed as they were being committed? What
2: crimes? Uh, Rape and murder. Oh, no, I
1: wasn't thinking about it. Because of the nature of his crimes and some of the things they found, like that old poster board presentation on serial killers that Edwin held on to, detectives did investigate whether he committed crimes before this. Local police even got the FBI involved.
5: The FBI were awesome in helping us uh, determine um, his his kind of background uh, all the way up through his childhood and some of his travel outside of the country.
1: I asked District Attorney John Hummel what he makes of Edwin Lara. How do you describe him? I mean, when you think of him evil, is he a psychopath, a sociopath? What do you think?
3: Edwin Lara is not uh, your normal criminal, right? Most most people in Bend, but I think most people nationwide who commit crimes are, are good people who have done a bad thing. you know Edwin Lara has a, a certain uh, Edwin Lara is an evil person, one of the few criminals we've seen in Deschutes County who are pure evil. Looking into his past we were struck to learn about a, a project that he did as a student at COCC. He was studying criminal justice at COCC and one of the projects he did was uh, a, a study into serial killers. He had a dioramas and charts. Uh, and it seemed to cross over from you know, a historical account of serial killers, and you know, scholarship from a researcher on that is certainly appropriate, almost to a kind of hero-worshipping, um, really a fascination with the lives of, of these serial killers.
1: Do you think he would have become a serial killer had he had the chance?
3: Um, I think so, and we also dug into his past to see if he was a serial killer. Um, it's challenging because you know, he's a Honduran national and so looking into his past in Honduras, um, it, it was difficult to do that uh, from Bend, um, but uh, but we did, we did background research and we didn't find any evidence that he had killed previously. I wouldn't be surprised if he has, um, but I'm not alleging he has. I, I, I never saw that evidence, but he's the type of person that you would think he has done it before or if he was not apprehended here, he would do it again.
1: Is that something, though, fair to say if somebody were to call you with a tip in Honduras that it'd be looked into?
3: If a crime occurred in, in Honduras, we would, you know, refer that to the Honduran National Police. But uh, it, uh, if I got that call, I would say i not surprised
1: at all. Yeah. Next time on Urge to Kill. Try. Andrea Mays has a message for Edwin as she tries to move on. I would just let him know that he is a piece of scum, and I hope he rots for eternity. And Edwin's attorney gives an interesting explanation for his crime spree. So we reach out to Edwin in prison to ask him about it. We would like to speak with Edwin Lara. Now the devil's gonna die. Urge to Kill is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. We've got a lot more information, including videos and pictures, on KGW.com slash Urge You can also follow us on Instagram at Urge to Kill Podcast and join the Urge to Kill Facebook group on KGW's Facebook page. This show is written and hosted by me, Ashley Korslan. It's produced by me, Destiny Johnson, and Mila Mamitsa. It's edited by Zachary Carver and Destiny Johnson. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Eric Patterson. Special thanks to Ellen Boynton and KGW Management and staff. If you or a loved one are a victim of sexual assault, help is available 24-7. Call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. Or you can find help at www.online.rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N.